This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, we're back. That's true. It's 2022 now. We did not record a ton of episodes in the fall of 2021. Nope. Pandemic's still happening. Right. That's very true. And I feel like you got to get the sea legs when you get back into, into the school year, particularly after the past couple of years. We'll go, we'll go with that. I think, I think everyone understands. It's been a continuing tough couple of years for educators, but we are excited to get back podcasting. And we're hoping that we're going to have a lot of great episodes and great guests going forward. Dan, do you have a, a new poster in your room? Is that from the Loki show? Yeah, I think, you know, we all we all dealt with the pandemic in our own ways. One thing I did is I just decided I was going to watch everything Marvel produced, which I'd watch none of it. And so but I really liked the uh, Loki show because it 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 messed around with time and space. And so, I, yeah, I bought I found this poster, this propaganda poster from the Time Variance Authority. Ooh, and it says tidy timeline. If you haven't seen the uh, series, it's uh, for Marvel fans. It's it's fun. Otherwise, yeah. I mean. Time travel and timelines is kind of a fun little thing to play around with in your in your head. Yeah, I mean the show I think dr- deals with a lot of social studies issues in its own way, right? I mean, um, I think a lot of the Marvel movies do have government, have questions of reality, have questions of of what's just and what's right, who should control the way we live our lives, and so I think that kind of is a nice little segue into you know our discussions today. So I have a question for you to get going. Oh, I'm in. So my first question is, how have discussions about like issues of injustice gone in your own classroom when they come up and whether you bring them up or whether they come from students? So I think we actually, we just spent some time talking about the Indian Removal Act in the Trail of Tears in, in looking at like the impact of uh, different Native American nations. And I think we did a pretty good job kind of like looking at what was the impetus for it, looking at some of the arguments that people had around that. And also the, the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian of the American Indian, uh, which I'm going to, I'll make sure I have it linked up. They have a really great, they actually have a great inquiry that we, we, we adapted for our own purposes that look at like how, you know, how different, uh, different groups were impacted and tried to resist the Indian Removal Act. And it, it was really kind of neat to like make sure that we had it wasn't just centered around like, you know, Andrew Jackson and the, the, the court case in just the, the Cherokee experience, but it really kind of like took you through some of the other of the, the quote unquote, you know, five civilized tribes. We ended up then getting into talking about like some of the modern day ramifications, particularly remember the Supreme Court case that we had just uh, talked about a couple episodes ago about how like who actually owns the land in Oklahoma and so then we're able to kind of like bring some of that in discussing some of the uh, the Supreme Court and the ramifications of that. It was neat. Uh, I was very excited to, to do that. Yeah, that was the uh, McGirt case that we discussed. And it's really cool to, to know that you're using 
resources from the National Museum of the American Indian. I was able to visit there fairly recently and it's a really oh, big, nice. Yeah, it's it's incredible. You just if you walk through it, you see lessons just kind of on the wall. And but one thing is, is that's an injustice that happened a long time ago, right? And I, I like the way that you already said that you didn't just focus on Jackson. I think it's an easy out, right? Like Jackson's the bad guy, um, which he is, but also like lots of other people had to, you know, agree with him for for Indian Removal Act to happen. Do you what about injustices that hit closer to home, right? That feel more, you know debatable, controversial in our modern day, but to you at least are clearly injustices. One of the projects that I started off this year with is far of like a, a constitution because we have the constitution day. And I thought it'd be interesting to focus on like voting rights and see how voting rights have changed for different groups. Looking at like, you know, 18 year olds, looking at African-Americans, looking at the, uh, for obviously for women, uh, looking at Native Americans and how voting rights and what it took to get voting rights for those groups and what, you know, roadblocks were in their way and how they're doing today. And so this was a US one class. And so I, I really kind of rooted this more so in like how they actually got voting rights. And then the idea is that next year when they're sophomores, when they get more into the more modern day, that they'll be able to take the same project virtually and then just say, okay, well, how are these groups doing today? So it's kind of like a part two, uh, looking at like, you know, how, you know, what roadblocks are in the way of these people for voting rights. And so like how they're actually doing it in, in modern days. So I thought that would be kind of a neat way to have this continuation. Yeah, of looking at access to voting and yeah. uh, just a different way to cover Constitution Day, I think. Yeah. Hey, unfortunately, they're going to have a lot to talk about if they actually are are paying attention to what's happening around the country regarding voter suppression um, and voter ID laws and everything like that. So here's a second question I have for you. Um, have you ever disagreed with the way a historical or contemporary issue is framed in your curriculum, right? The way that it's set up, the way that they talk about it, the, the even maybe the headers they use in the book to introduce it or other resources you have? Yeah, I think that I just got over a Manifest Destiny unit I'm really into my US one class right now, but I, I'm, I just got over a manifest destiny unit in which like, even just calling it just manifest destiny, I think is just like, really? Like this is, right. and so I, I do change it to westward expansion. And we talk about, you know, manifest destiny as a concept, but I feel like by framing it as manifest destiny and, you know, it's the United States, you know, God given rights to, to go to the shining sea. Like you're really being dismissive of, of a lot. And so, um, I just personally have, have changed the title of the unit uh, and made sure that, you know, the, we talk about different aspects of it and how it happened and what groups were impacted by it. Obviously, I just talked about the uh, Hindu Removal Act. And so you can kind of see that, like, you know, I'm doing my best to, you know, bring different voices in into, you know, and so that's something that I, I yeah. do struggle, you know, uh, struggle with. The other thing that I think, so, right, we talk about imperialism in my world history class. And I feel like when we talk about imperialism, we're really focused on the uh, European experience with imperialism. And so I've been doing uh, the past couple of years, my colleagues and I, it's really been a, a great effort for, from the group. We've been looking at trying to make sure we tell stories of resistance to imperialism. So this way we can actually have like, you know, a more like holistic discussion of like how people are impacted by it. You know, people don't just acquiesce to the Europeans. 
And so we've been doing our best to make sure we give voices to, to those who are being suppressed. And so those are ways that I, I think that, uh, you know, as a teacher and, you know, as a group member that we have been trying to, to push the ball forward in, in getting other voices heard. Right. And I think those are two great examples. And really, the whole social studies curriculum offers great examples, you know? I mean, oh, with yeah. the first... just the two things I'm on right now. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> this is just like this week. Right. And it's amazing too to me, you know, the more I've studied these topics, the more you... It's amazing. You just don't see... You see Manifest Destiny still, but you don't see settler colonialism in most textbooks, right? And you don't... You see westward expansion. You don't see eastward invasion, right? Oh, yeah. You, yeah. you know, and so... And you see all these ideas about imperialism globally, and you don't see a focus on American imperialism, right? So there's all these ways that it seems like narratives are formed by, you know, just the framing of curriculum issues. Yeah, agreed. So maybe that's something teachers could work on, and we could bring in somebody who could help us think about how to frame curriculum in ways to kind of achieve that and help students grow as the type of citizens that we want. So it's I a do good time like to a good frame. Yeah. And speaking so of frames, your glasses are looking pretty good. Oh, thank you. I know the rest of you can't see it, but if you see me, any, which you won't, because I will be keeping away from everyone during Omicron. But if you see me, yeah, thank you, Michael. Everyone will, I don't know, people won't be able to see the glasses through the podcast, but just imagine. <laughs> so we would like to welcome into the podcast, Dr. Mark Leviacek. Hi, thanks for having me. So Dr. Mark Leviacek, do you mind telling us about who is Dr. Leviacek and, uh, you know, uh, your background in education and whatnot. Tell the people what they want. Sure. So I'm a uh, professor of communication here at UNT, but um, I also have a background in education. I completed my, a teacher ed program as an undergrad, um, and I taught um, debate in Chicago's Urban Debate League for a year before um, going off to grad school. And uh, my communication scholarship focuses on um, education, history, and policy. So, for example, I wrote a book called Assigning Blame. That's about the excess levels, excessive levels of uh, public blaming in discussions of education policy. And so some of the work we're going to talk about today marks a bit of a shift for me um, from studying what people say about classrooms to studying uh, what people say in classrooms. And I'm kind of, I'm going to kind of be like a guest on this podcast going forward now, Michael, you have yep. to, you have to like ask me questions too. D Dr. Dan Krutka, who are you? And <laughs> when did this happen? I did not realize that you were, that I was interviewing both of you. Curveball coming into 2022. Everyone, every episode is going to be, and me, and you're not going to know it ahead of time. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so the, the cool thing about this project is that Mark and I, it's an interdisciplinary project, right? He's in a different department at the university, which I've always been a big fan of working with people in different areas. I think in schools, you know, um, we've taken these subjects, adults create them, and then we tell kids to learn these subjects and we, we, you know, have these boxes around them. And it's hard to do work. Like in high school, I really wanted to do like collaborations with the, the English language arts teachers. And it was just hard to get anyone to make, give up any ground on their curriculum. Right. And they feel we feel the pressure from tests and standards and all those things. Uh, so it's been really uh, cool to work with Mark and to talk from social studies education and then him to bring in kind of his expertise in <clears throat> communication and rhetoric and to kind of work on a project together. And so, yeah, we're excited. We're excited to share what, what we've been working on. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm excited to hear about it. Do you mind telling us about your, uh, the project that you've been working on? Yeah. Um, so this is an article that's about how teachers frame controversial issue discussions when they want to teach using like a critical perspective. 
An important precursor to our work was this social education piece by Ryan Crawley and LeGarrette King, where they laid out this concept of critical inquiry. And their idea was that a critically oriented inquiry lesson should question systems of power and oppression, center perspectives of marginalized and oppressed people, and ask students to take tangible steps toward addressing the injustices they study. And our reaction was yes to all of that. That all sounds great. But what kind of discussion frame um, should come along with those commitments? If you're going to do those things, what kind of a classroom discussion would you have? And so as we see it, um, there are like three frames for discussing controversial issues. And this TRSC article is about the second one. But I think it might be useful for teachers and others in your audience to kind of hear about all three to understand like why the one we've written about is important and to also just get a broader idea of the different ways you can frame a discussion. Does that sound good? I'm in. I'd also like to know the name of the article. Oh, right. The article is titled Deliberation Can Wait, How Civic Litigation Makes Inquiry Critical. When we wrote this, deliberation has kind of been the status quo, I think, in the social studies for a long time. Now, I'm not sure all classroom teachers uh, have like, you know, gotten into the deliberation literature, but people have written about this, have been writing about it for years, and it's really been used a lot in social studies. So maybe Mark could get us started. You want to help us review what deliberation means for a social studies classroom? Yeah. So like often when you hear uh, the word deliberation, you just think any kind of thoughtful group discussion, but it has some special meaning for rhetorical and political theorists. A deliberation is the kind of discussion that a legislature, a healthy one, mind you, is supposed to have, right? So a a functioning legislature, it's how they should talk to each other. The framework for a discussion um, is, uh, or for deliberation, is supposed to uh, be balanced between its opposing sides, and it should feature pro and con arguments that basically stick to the issue at hand, which is usually an argument over like a, a policy idea or a policy proposal. This can be a good way to address, address an issue of injustice, but not always, because uh, sometimes social power relations make a discussion inherently um, unbalanced or unequal. And sometimes the issue at hand can't really be resolved just through creating like a new policy. Sometimes the issue like runs deeper. For example, a few years ago with one of my doc students here at UNT, we wrote an article about voter ID laws. We were really concerned that these voter ID laws were intended to suppress the vote of people of color. And so we thought, you know, this is an issue that should be taken up in social studies classes. So this might be something that they'd take up the next year. Hopefully you could talk to your teachers in your school about this. And so we created an inquiry lesson with the compelling question, are voter ID laws democratic? And when we were writing it, there was something that felt off about it the whole time to me. We need to recognize an injustice and we need what social studies should be doing is advocating for a just multiracial democracy, not one that just has laws and includes people, but one that actually you know seeks to achieve equity and fight for equal rights. And to me, the voter ID laws were disingenuous. A lot of the arguments that are being made for voter ID laws were not, to me, honest arguments. And so I was very afraid that in the end, when I put this forward, even though we tried to put a lot of evidence in the lesson, that it still was just giving space for people to say, yeah, voter ID laws are democratic because the legislature did it and the legislature represents us and we're a constitutional democracy. So the laws are all that matters. It doesn't matter if there's actual equal rights as part of that. 
And so that was kind of one of the things we, Mark and I talked a lot about, and we were thinking like, took this voter ID topic up and used a deliberative model. To me, something was wrong, especially as someone who's trying to teach for multiracial, just democracy. Yeah, and I remember this actually, because we first got to talking about this. This was at um, a local coffee shop slash brewery where we were both doing some work and you were telling me um, about, about this lesson. And the voter ID lesson was really interesting, right? Because it was this interesting controversy. And in the end, the, the lesson really functionally asked students to deliberate it, which was like to have a pro and con discussion of voter ID laws, which is all well and good on its own. But with voter ID, as with many issues, there were two versions of the controversy, in this case, coming from the two major political parties, right? And so many of the Republicans who are advocating voter ID laws, for them, the controversy was like it was the pro and con argument. It was um, whether or not the um, laws ought to be passed. But for many of the Democrats who opposed voter ID, um, even the ones quoted in the lesson, the, the controversy was not necessarily just about whether or not voter ID should be passed, but it was whether or not um, Republicans were acting in bad faith. And they basically charged that these voter ID laws were just like a surreptitious way to achieve voter suppression. And so they weren't just arguing for and against voter ID, they were actually making an accusation, and that creates a different kind of conversation. I'll just add one other note here is that when we often center the political debates of the two major parties, both parties have done a good job of leaving out the views and positions of people of color in this country, of indigenous people. And so oftentimes those two views are really not inclusive of the most just options that exist, which is kind of what we were running into sometimes in this lesson. Now, it may have been in this case that those were represented, but in many cases, that is not the case. And so we wrote the paper on a different idea, which goes back historically quite a ways. And uh, having taught, I think you've gone back all the way to the Greeks, Michael. So um, in your European history courses, right? Don't you make it back that far? Not me. No. Oh, sorry. Never mind. No, the earliest I get is the Enlightenment or Absolute Monarchs. Yeah, so this like this really brings us to our second kind of controversy, which is one contested with arguments of accusation and defense rather than pro and con. And so this kind of controversy takes its form from the courtroom. And you know, in its original Greek theorization, it was called forensic rhetoric, but um, we here call it civic litigation, so a kind of public discussion of a justice issue. In a civic litigation, the argument is over who's responsible for the injustice. In the case of the voter ID controversy, that's the kind of discussion the Democrats wanted to have. But if we assume that deliberation is always the fairest and best kind of civic conversation, then we never make space for pursuing these justice issues through a litigation. And we can unknowingly take sides when we actually think that we're being fair simple way of just thinking about this now is just already this lesson. So we had a question that was, are voter ID laws democratic? And we switched to who is responsible for voter suppression, right? So we switched from this debate that the political parties are having oftentimes in the national media to focusing on who is creating voter suppression and and looking for responsibility. And so you've seen some organizations that really have litigation lessons already. The Zen Ed Project, if you've ever been to their website, for example, they have a, um, a Columbus lesson that asks who is responsible for the genocide of the Taino or Arawak people 
and it, it like has all these cases you can go through and they have several lessons along those lines. So even though people had never used this term for what they're doing before, there are some examples where we're seeking out to be responsible. And I personally think social studies in my experience is very bad about responsibility, right? We often want to like talk about the problem. And this happens a lot with things like slavery in textbooks, where there's passive language that, that, you know, slaves, which is often the way it's framed, were abused or, you know, and it doesn't say who did it. And so we don't ever have right. to talk about whiteness or white supremacy or the ideologies or people who did it. We just bypass it and um, focus on, you know, black suffering. And people have been trying to work on, on some of that. And I think litigation helps us wrestle with some of those things. So it's a, it's a shift in what you're talking about and how we think about the, the purpose of discussion. So there are three frameworks that you're going to be talking about. The first one is uh, deliberation. The second one is litigation. Now you have us all on pins and needles for this third way. And I don't want to, you know, I mean, I, I, can you, can you tell us? I'm really kind of <laughs> yeah. I'm biting my nails down to the oh. uh, quick, if you can do that. So yeah, uh, we, uh, we promised you three discussion frameworks. So let's talk about one more. Both deliberation and litigation have these long theoretical histories in Western culture that stretch back to the Greeks. Uh, but resistance to modern forms of oppression has given rise to uh, other forms of civic discourse that are you know, marked by this resistive effort. Um, and so one of these uh, that has been important for social studies educators is uh, comes from critical race theory, and it's called counter-narration. At its core, a counter-narration challenges a master narrative by centering narratives from those who have been marginalized. So it's a, it's a discourse from the margins. Uh, as a framework for civic discussion, counter-narrative can be used to address controversies, either uh, by challenging the, the master narrative, so putting the counter-narrative and the master narrative in conversation with each, with each other, or sometimes even by putting multiple counter-narrative you know, uh, arguments in conversation with each other. So like, for example, when a, uh, a social studies teacher teaches the you know, kind of debate between MLK and, and Mal Malcolm X, that's like one way of doing that. It's a very classic way of accomplishing that, that kind of discussion. And so this also offers another way of dividing up a controversy for the classroom. So you have, just so I have these straight, you have the uh, deliberation, you have the uh, litigation, and then you have the counter narration. How, is there a way that we can like look at like one topic and how each of like these different frameworks could be used for that? Yeah, I, I think a good topic that is like clearly um, a justice issue Right, and that clearly lend itself well to critical inquiry um, would be reparations, right? So, um, considering the idea of reparations for like Americans descended from slaves, a deliberation isn't really the kind of discussion designed to determine who is responsible for slavery and its legacy of inequality. Like, that's not a pro and con kind of argument, but deliberation is good for having a pro con argument over a policy to address it. Like, should there be a commission to investigate slavery, its unjust legacy, and what should be done about it? But indeed, there has been such a policy proposed, and it passed through the House of Representatives, House Resolution 40. H.R. 40 has been deliberated, and it provides an example of how deliberation can address injustice in, in kind of like a, a roundabout way. So with that, we're just literally talking about a pros and cons list, and here are the pros of, of doing this and the, the cons of doing this. And that's kind of where things end. 
Sort of. Yeah, it, it would be because the, the question before, right, the Congress is, is like, should we pass this law? It's should we pass House Resolution 40? H.R. 40 creates this commission. And the, the fundamental question is like, should there be a commission or not? And, you know, all of the other things that can come up in should there be a commission or not, like how bad was slavery, how lasting were its impacts, those are relevant, but they're kind of underneath, right, and serving the question of like, should we appropriate funds and go and, you know, um, create this panel and have it come back to us and report to the Congress. And that's a different conversation, though, than a conversation that asks, like, you know, who is responsible for this history and what should be done to those folks. In this case, the commission would handle that question, but not the discussion in Congress. The session is Congress is, should we, like, fund this commission? And that's like a pro-con. And the title of your article is Deliberation Can Wait. So you want us to move forward in this. So I'm I'm looking forward to see how the other ones would tackle this. Yeah, so, we're a little critical of deliberation. Yeah, and I mean, deliberation can lead to justice happening. It just seems to oftentimes not be that way, <laughs> right? I mean, you often don't. Um, I mean, as you can see, right, with this reparations debate, it didn't end up going through passing a law that led to reparations and and repairing a historical injustice. And so in the classroom, it could, it is possible, right? You could put the question out, the, the examples we've used elsewhere, like the voter ID one, our voter ID law is democratic. And in the end, the students could decide, no, these are undemocratic. Yes, reparations are needed. And they could end by saying, we should do something about this. So it, it theoretically can. The problem is in, in classrooms and in US society, it often has not. And so these other methods are helpful for thinking about, maybe if we really wanna tackle this issue, one of these other approaches could be helpful for me in my classroom. So what about the reparations example for the other two, Mark? Yeah, so a civic litigation is, it is the classic argument for and against reparations because it's the argument over who's responsible for slavery and the unequal legacy it's left us with and what would it mean to restore justice? That's what a civic litigation is about. It's a public conversation that centers those questions. And so, you know, even when there are sort of practical questions, right, about like, you know, what would it mean, like, what would it cost to, you know, to engage in a a serious effort at repairing an injustice of such a scale, those kinds of practical pro and con questions are useful, but they're subordinate in a civic litigation to the fundamental question of like, what would be just and, you know, who, who's responsible and how do we, you know, a- achieve justice. And so civic litigation is that, like the, like the classic reparations debate is an example of a, of a civic litigation. And so if we turned back to like Indian removal, right, the, the focus would be less on the suffering of those indigenous nations. By the way, I mean, of course, we don't want to not teach about that. The, we want to address that head on. But we would also center some of our attention on who are all of the people, right? Besides not not just Andrew Jackson, but who are responsible for this. And by the way, are you know white Americans still settler colonialists, right? Are still benefiting from these structures that have been put in place? Still historically benefit from the wealth that was was generated, right? Which are similar questions to the reparation one. So asking those questions makes people sometimes very uncomfortable. And, it, and we often avoid them in social studies because it makes us head on deal with some of the legacies of racism in this country that endure today. And so, again, you know, these things can be hard to pull apart because sometimes they're interrelated. You might, in the course of arguing an issue of civic litigation, bring in 
examples that are functionally counter narratives. Uh, but the purpose of them would be to answer the question, what, what is just in this case? And that's how we get a civic litigation. I like the idea of civic litigation because it kind of reminds me like this could be like a, a show on network TV where you have like the civic litigators and they, they <laughs> yes. go around and they, they, you know, seek to uh, fight injustice. And you have like, you know, they go around, they gather evidence. People are always working when they're asking them questions and very like law and order type, you know. I like that. And actually, you know, part of what's, I think, really important here and part of why I was interested, you know, to do this work and be involved in it is oftentimes we make this assumption that a litigative discussion is something that happens inside a courthouse or that it's only legitimate when it happens inside a courthouse. And so this kind of, you know, ancient Greek sense of a public discussion that asks questions about justice and then asks them in a consequential way for the society, I think is important. And so, yeah, I actually like the idea of like superheroes, <laughs> you know, or like, you know, I, I don't know, like superhero-esque public litigators uh, or something like that doing this kind of work because it, it needs to be public. And that's part of the idea with this is that, you know, social studies teachers and their students shouldn't feel intimidated or like they can't do this kind of discourse because it fundamentally is a public thing. And I think it's actually an important civic skill for students to learn, to make accusations, to defend them where necessary and appropriate, and to make strong arguments in that space, and to not assume that when we make those kinds of arguments that we're somehow breaking the rules of civic discourse too, that we're not getting away from the issue because we're asking the serious question of who's doing this and how should they be responsible. We can't set those things aside. Um, we run it, It's dangerous for our society to set those things aside, but we need to learn the habit of talking that way and of arguing that way and doing it well. So if we think in terms of counter narration and reparations, a good example of a, a counter narrative discourse about reparations would be um, the way that like Ta-Nehisi Coates's like famous article, Case for Reparations, like chronicles the like consequences of slavery and, and later forms of discrimination. Putting that into conversation with a kind of meta narrative or, or, or master narrative that our country doesn't need reparations that we've sort of paid for, you know, um, the consequences of slavery um, or that we've made steady progress um, racially. That would be one way of generating like a classroom controversy or classroom discussion. But beyond that, um, you can also have counter narratives that contest each other. So y'all probably are aware that I think it was last year, the city of Evanston created this housing voucher program in, as a response to its history of, of, of racist housing discrimination. And But there was actually a really interesting argument on the city council there between uh, Simmons, who was proposing it and ultimately got it passed, and another um, alderwoman, uh, Fleming, who was opposing that, that program. And her, you know, the opposition to this kind of program was really because it's a housing voucher. It would give money for people to purchase homes or pay down mortgages, as opposed to just giving money. One argument about how reparations ought to work is that they should, they should be payment not a voucher, that you should be able to have the freedom to choose what you do with the payment that you receive. And that itself is also a sort of underlying counter narrative about like, what does a reparation mean? So on the one hand, counter narratives and master narratives can be in tension with each other, but also different counter narratives can come out in tension with each other in surprising ways. And when you focus on those counter narratives arguing with each other, you really do like recenter 
the classroom conversation in a really interesting way. Like a classroom discussion about the opposing views on the Evanston City Council would actually be like a really different and interesting way, right, of thinking about like the reparations argument versus the argument been had in the past, should we or shouldn't we? I like to liken counter narration to almost a protest meeting or like a protest planning meeting for people who are committed to addressing some injustice. So it's not in the legislature. It's not in the courtrooms. It's actually kind of in some community space. And oftentimes this is, you know, historically marginalized groups who are fighting to address the systemic injustices. And within that, there can be disagreement. Now, the challenge we have is we often have you know, multiracial classrooms. What happens? Because oftentimes you may have like an indigenous activist group saying we need to address this injustice. What happens when you insert white students too into this discussion? And so this, of course, takes a lot of care by educators to think about how we discuss these. And so counter narration is a little bit different than the other two, but it's such a strong and rich tradition from critical scholars and scholars of color. We thought we had to set it next to these other ones as an option to really just center the perspectives of the groups who are vulnerable or most affected by harms or policies in whichever situation you're talking about. At this point, I'm just trying to figure out how I would be able to do that. Was there like a practical way that I would be able to bring counter narration into the classroom in like a, like you just give me an example of what that might look like? Counter narration is associated directly with critical race theory. A lot of critical race theory like advocates for that. And so teachers may think I can't do this in my classroom, but, you know, teachers can figure out what they can do in their own context. For example, when it questions a master narrative, one master narrative is the United States is the freest country on earth or something, right? So say you read the autobiography of Frederick Douglass and you asked a question, you know, is America really as free as we say? And or as you you could ask some kind of other question like that around freedom, but you're centering the story of someone who was formerly enslaved. All of a sudden, that is counter narration. And so teachers, I think, actually do this in their classroom and ask important questions about things like freedom and listen to people like, you know, Frederick Douglass, who, by the way, was disrupting all these narratives during his own life. Right. I like to mention. Well, you know, I like to talk about. Yeah, I was going to mention the bingo card that we have going. Yeah. You know, you don't have to name them for other people. They're strategies for teachers to use who are seeking to do justice work in social studies classrooms. But the way they do it is is up to them. And I think if you know what you're doing, that's the most important thing. Yeah. And and also, like, it's a kind of care to not to just assume that a deliberation is going to be the best thing or that that's going to represent kind of views that you want in the classroom. So I'm a classroom teacher. And I want to plan my, my controversial discussion of, of, some, of some sort. Like, what are some things that I should consider when I'm making the decision as to what type of framework that I would uh, want to put in place? I actually see these three as being helpful ways of seeing all of the things you're looking at. This can be helpful for what your curriculum issues, right? When you're thinking about how to frame Indian Removal Act, when you're thinking how to frame quote unquote, manifest destiny or westward expansion, you can figure out the guiding question for that unit. Do we want to ask some deliberative question, a litigative question, or something that's counter narrative? But this can also be a way to look at like the larger world. Like you could have injustices in your school and you're trying to think how to address them. And sometimes people are bypassing who's responsible. And so you may be like, whoa, we need to like use this litigative question to address this before we can even start talking about solutions. If we have bullying in our school, who is bullying and why and who's being bullied? If we don't address that, then that can be problematic. So I always say like this can be a lens for teachers, not only to look at the way textbooks are framed 
or the way a lesson is organized, but also to look at other aspects of life and how we address injustices. Yeah, I think one of the critical things here is to just understand that there is a real moment of agency here for teachers, that when you want to have a controversial discussion in a classroom, you're not stuck with one framework. Most of the advice has been to hold a deliberation. And there are many cases where deliberation is an appropriate choice and where it will work well, but it's not always the best choice. And sometimes it's playing into a certain kind of politics. If I could say anything to teachers, I would say that, you know, choosing a deliberation is not a neutral political choice. You're not being perfectly equal and fair when you do so. No civic, you know, discussion framework is. But if you understand, if you, if you have a look at the, the, the controversy and think through how you want to present it, then you have some agency in choosing how it's presented. I also think that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a challenging concept, but it, it is one that if I could like wave a magic wand, I would love for like all, <laughs> you know, Americans to understand it, to understand like when they're, um, when these frames are being switched or, or sort of which one they're operating in when they're having a, a civic discussion. Because I think that confusion between them often causes lots of, lots of problems for us. So helping students to see this as well, where possible, would be, would be really helpful. You know, um, you don't have to have just one of these. I think an interesting lesson might be to take a single topic and hold all of these kinds of discussions and see what happens and see how students react to it. I know that there's only so much time in a social studies curriculum <laughs> for such things, but you know, if you got it, I think that could be a productive exercise. But fundamentally, it's understanding that there's choice, right? Exercising that agency and trying to pass that agency on to your students to know that they don't have to have a particular kind of conversation. And it's a great example now with all these anti-CRT laws and people showing up at teachers meetings, right? To say, we're kind of being gaslit into a deliberation about critical race theory in schools, which is being misrepresented. By the way, I think it would be great to have critical race theory in schools. We actually might get some toward, move towards some justice then. But that the real question is a litigative question there. Who's responsible for this, right? That's the thing I would like to focus on. Um, and we know who the people are, but that story is told so much less than people just covering the debates, which means to me that those people, you know, the conservatives that have fought for that are winning. If we have their debate on their terms, they're, they're winning and we are not moving towards justice. And so litigation and counter narration can be much better ways centering the stories of teachers who really do social justice work and telling what that really looks like, or focusing on the people who are really causing this harm could be much more productive than a false deliberative frame. And there can be legitimate deliberative frames too, but a lot of times they sure. just lean away from injustice. And it becomes, and it also becomes this kind of justification or a crutch, right? That's kind of leaned back on, right? So like this kind of like CRT is dangerous kind of discourse. When it's called out, then you kind of lean back on the idea. Well, I just want to have a pro and con conversation about it. I mean, that's, it becomes, you, you see how it kind of like functions as this excusatory uh, sort of thing. And so, you know, it's, it's not letting it's social studies lessons be framed in, in these unthoughtful ways or, um, you know, get framed from elsewhere, right? The idea is like, if you're a teacher and if your commitment is to doing justice work, then this is a tool for understanding the different frameworks for the conversations you can have. And that might be able to help you not fall into certain kinds of conversations. It can also help you identify when things are, when certain things kind of happen in the classroom. Uh, setting up a discussion with a sort of litigative controversy at center can help you avoid some of the pitfalls that can come about 
out from like a broad-based kind of deliberative argument by helping you kind of explain how um, certain arguments aren't helpful or, or useful in that situation. So like one example to go back to reparations is you hear sort of like the counter examples of like, you know, well, Irish people were treated really badly in this country at one point, which is true, but it's rel- the relevance to a reparations conversation is, 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 is not great. But if, you, if you're framing it as a deliberation, you know, you're kind of open to all pro and cons. But if you frame it more like a civic litigation, like, hey, look, the, the question here is whether or not we should act in specific in regard to slavery and its legacy of of oppression and inequality, Um, then it helps you kind of reframe the conversation a bit. Well, thank you, Dan and and, uh, Dr. Levitek. You've given me a lot to think about, and hopefully our our listeners will uh, check out that article in TRSC, Deliberation Can Wait, How Civic Litigation Makes Inquiry Critical. I'm also excited you named it after, I'm assuming, the 1978 film Heaven Can Wait, in a way that's interesting, I, I thought. <laughs> Michael, we were thinking more along like Martin Luther King's Why We Can't Wait. We thought he, we talk about King and Letter from Birmingham Jail in the article, but I'll watch that movie. Need a new movie to watch instead yeah, of like, I mean, instead of just Loki. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I was in the play in high school, so that's why. <laughs> so thank you so much. Do you mind uh, telling people where we can find? So, Dan, obviously, we know how to find you. You're kind of, uh, you're here. Right. Um, just come back to the Mark, podcast. Mark, by telling us where the people can find you in your work online. Sure. So um, my faculty uh, webpage at UNT has uh, all the things that I've written of consequence listed there. If you're interested in my book, Assigning Blame, my article with Dan, it also has things on the way. And one thing I'll just highlight really quickly is there will be a social ed piece uh, that is based on this article. So if you are maybe not the type who's into TRSC articles that are 30 pages long. The version of it that will be in social ed is going to be a little bit easier to digest, a little more direct, and will include the schema that we talked about today. And so you you can look for that there. Um, I'll put a link up to that um, when that's available. I do enjoy a good snackable article. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today. We do hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Now at the Vision of Education podcast, of course, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and we get it, we're there waiting for you right here. Hit us up. We're on, sometimes on Facebook, but mostly on Twitter at Visions of Ed. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. And anywhere you'd like us to be, but, and apparently we're also a good we're also a good gift to to give friends. For, give them uh, the gift of visions of Ed, and and another thing you can give is a five star review to us. Right? You might ask yourself, is the right thing to give a five star review? Or we could ask, who's responsible for not giving us five star reviews? There's lots of ways to frame this discussion. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka, and I'm at forty two fifty. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off, sir.